I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine scripture for the deeper truths that are revealed in the text, and what we can then learn about our reality through them. Well, I guess it's time to say happy one year. This is episode 52, which means that we've been engaged in this experiment for nearly a year now. Uh, it's not exactly right because I did start with five episodes back to back. But we're close, and how the time has flown. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been reading through the plagues of Egypt. And as we've gone through them, we've examined them in a very specific order. Now, we could have examined the plagues individually and out of context, and there's a lot that we could have learned from that type of study. But I chose instead to examine the plagues of Egypt three separate times, and to do so each time from an entirely new point of view. And the order of examination that I have taken in this endeavor was in fact inspired by the book of Genesis, because the plagues sum up the very beginning of Genesis. Now remember that the book of Exodus contains an in-depth revelation of Hashem, from the most basic qualities and characteristics to his more intimate and well-defined characteristics and qualities. And so at the beginning of this book, the revelation of God is a beginner's revelation of God. And in the plagues, we've seen that introduction. Genesis begins with creation, and in the first week of going through the plagues, we saw that the plagues revealed in a very real way the qualities of Hashem as creator of all things. He demonstrates through these events that he has the power and authority over all things of creation, to the point where, in the end, he is engaged in reversing the very fabric of creation in Egypt. The animals perish, the vegetation dies, and then the very light itself is taken away from Egypt. And the order the plagues occurs in the sequence would have been meaningful to the Egyptians as it parrots their own creation myth, and they are designed to blatantly prove this myth as impossible and incorrect. Because it begins in the waters of the Nile and then moves on to land, and from there, progressively, it gets larger and larger as the plagues proceed from gnats to animals to humans, and then the plagues move into the heavens, from the weather to the wind to the heavenly luminaries. And every time, creation is made subject to the power and the authority of the God of Israel, which, in the Egyptian mind, is absolutely impossible. Well, as Genesis moves from creation, the next great sequence in Genesis is the flood narrative. This narrative gives an example of God's justice and judgment on mankind for sin. And last week we saw how the plagues acted as a judgment upon the gods of Egypt, from the more intimate and local deities to the greatest god of the Egyptian pantheon. The entire lot was judged as wanting, and Pharaoh and his lackeys were proven to be empty and powerless. This week we move to the next great narrative of Genesis, one that begins in Genesis 12 and continues through the end of the book. So in Genesis 12, God chooses a single man through whom to bless the world. 
And through the rest of the book of Genesis, this is revealed over and over and over. God choosing one man over another or others and working in and through that man and his family to accomplish his purposes. Most of all, we see God making a distinction between his chosen people and all the other people in the world. Whether it is God's deliverance of Abraham and Sarah from the hands of the kings of Pharaoh and Gerar, the selection and then later deliverance of Isaac from his own command to sacrifice, Jacob chosen above Esau, or Joseph chosen above all of his siblings, Hashem is a God who chooses and makes a distinction between the people who are his and the people who are not. And even within the realm of those who are his, he continues to make distinction. This may seem somewhat elementary to some of you, but to others, this is a completely new idea. This part of Exodus is designed to reveal the God of the universe to everyone. And as we may discover, this idea is not as elementary as we would like to believe it is. So this week we will see that while there is a solid line dividing men from God's perspective, this line is a permeable line. Men can cross this line of separation from God. So let's read this Parsha and then come back and discuss the qualities of Hashem as a God of distinction. Exodus 10, 1-11.10 And Hashem said to Moshe, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, so that I show these signs of mine before him, and that you relate in the hearing of your son and your son's sons what I have done in Mitzrayim, and my signs which I have done among them, and you shall know that I am Hashem. And Moshe and Aharon came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Hashem, Elohim of the Hebrews, Till when shall you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they serve me. Or else if you refuse to let my people go, see, tomorrow I am bringing locusts within your borders, and they shall cover the surface of the land, so that no one is able to see the land, and they shall eat the rest of what has escaped, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. And they shall fill your houses in the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Mitzrites which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. Then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servant said to him, Till when would this one be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they serve Hashem their Elohim. Do you not yet know that Mitzrayim is destroyed? And Moshe and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve Hashem your Elohim. Who are the ones that are going? And Moshe said, We are going with our young and our old and with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds. We are going, for we have a festival to Hashem. And he said to them, Let Hashem be with you as I let you and your little ones go. Watch, for evil is before your face. Not so. You men go now and serve Hashem, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Hashem said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand over the land of Mitzrayim for the locusts to come upon the land of Mitzrayim, and eat every plant of the land, all that the hail has left. And Moshe stretched out his rod over the land of Mitzrayim, and Hashem brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. Morning came, and the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Mitzrayim and settled within all the borders of Mitzrayim, very grievous. There had never been locusts like them before, nor would there ever be like them. And they covered the surface of all the land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees, which the hail had left, and no greenness was left on the trees or on the plants of the field in all the land of Mitzrayim. Pharaoh then called for Moshe and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against Hashem your Elohim and against you. 
And now, please, forgive my sin only this once, and pray to Hashem your Elohim that he would only turn away this death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Hashem. And Hashem turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Sea of Reeds. Not one locust was left within the border of all Mitzrayim. However, Hashem strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not let the children of Israel go. And Hashem said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand toward the heaven, and let there be darkness over the land of Mitzrayim, even a darkness which is felt. And Moshe stretched out his hand toward the heavens, and there was thick darkness in the land of Mitzrayim for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, while all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called to Moshe, and said, Go, serve Hashem, only leave your flocks and your herds behind, let your little ones go with you. But Moshe said, you yourself are to provide us with sacrifices and ascending offerings to prepare for Hashem our Elohim, and our livestock are to go with us too. Not a hoof is to be left behind, for we have to take some of them to serve Hashem our Elohim, and we ourselves do not know with what we are to serve Hashem until we come there. However, Hashem strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, watch yourself, and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you die. And Moshe said, You have spoken rightly. Never again do I see your face. And Hashem said to Moshe, I am bringing yet one more plague on Pharaoh and Mitzrayim. After that he is going to let you go from here. When he lets you go, he shall drive you out from here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, objects of silver and objects of gold. And Hashem gave the people favor in the eyes of the Mitzrites, and the man Moshe was very great in the land of Mitzrayim, in the eyes of Pharaoh's servants, and in the eyes of the people. And Moshe said, Thus said Hashem, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Mitzrayim, and all the firstborn of the land of Mitzrayim shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Mitzrayim, such as never been or ever shall be again. But against any of the children of Israel no dog shall move its tongue, against man or against beast, so that you know that Hashem makes distinction between Mitzrayim and Yisrael. And all these servants of yours shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people at your feet, and after that I shall go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great displeasure. But Hashem said to Moshe, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you in order to multiply my wonders in the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. However, Hashem strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Malachi 2.17 reads, You have wearied Hashem with your words, and you have said, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of Hashem and he is delighting in them, or where is the Elohim of justice? There is a sickness in our world. It infects our politics, our schools, and even our modern churches. There is a foundational idea that permeates our culture, and this is the idea that God accepts all people, that a person can do whatever they want and they will be approved of by God. That there is no standard that matters to God but love, and love is accomplished through acceptance of everyone at all times, regardless of their actions. This is the main tenet of many worldwide religions, and our culture is not immune. There's a huge problem with this idea, though. There is no verse in Scripture that states that God loves everyone. 
that God will show love to every person who has ever lived. In fact, if we truly consider the depth of God's justice, then we have to know in our hearts that there are those who will end up on the wrath end of his justice, those who take liberties, those who take advantage, those who take for themselves being among them. Now, there is no verse that says that God loves everyone. In fact, throughout Scripture from one end to the other, quite the opposite is stated. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son possesses everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of Elohim remains on him. Oh, but God still loves them, right? Even if he is forced in his justice to punish them. Well, how about when Scripture blatantly states this fact in Malachi 1, 1 1-4? The message of the word of Hashem to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says Hashem. But you asked, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Hashem? And I love Yaakov, but I have hated Esau. And I have laid waste to his mountains and his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. If Edom says, we have been beaten down and let us return and build the ruins, Hashem of hosts says thus, Let them build, but I tear down, and they shall be called border of wrongness, and the people against whom Hashem is enraged forever. Okay, so maybe it's just Esau. He's the only one, right? Well, what about Psalm 5.5? The boasters do not stand before your eyes. You hate all the workers of wickedness. Or Psalm 11.5. Hashem tries the righteous, but his being shall hate the wrong and the one who loves violence. Or Leviticus 20, verse 23, And do not walk in the laws of the nations which I am driving out before you, for they do all these, and therefore I loathed them. Ah, okay, so God dislikes the worst of sinners. But surely God could never hate his own people. But what about Hosea 9, 13 through 17? It says, I have seen Ephraim like Zor planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring out his children to the killer. Give them to Hashem. Give what? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is in Gilgal, for there I have hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I drive them from my house. No more do I love them. All their rulers are rebels. Ephraim has been stricken. Their root has dried up. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I shall put to death the precious ones of their womb. My Elohim rejects them, because they have not obeyed him, so that they become wonders among the nations. Wait, even Ephraim, even the son who was blessed by Jacob, God hated Ephraim? This thought that God loves everyone is in fact a dangerous thought, because it creates complacency. It allows some to continue in sin and to not repent of their wickedness. It puts a band-aid on the conscience and prevents the wrong from entering into repentance. But God hates the sin and loves the sinner. That's what I have always heard. But how accurate is this idea? Now, if you're washed in the blood of Yeshua, you are no longer defined by sin and therefore no longer a sinner. But if you are not cleansed by his blood, then you are on the wrong side of judgment and he will punish those who remain in their sins. Well, okay, so the platitude is wrong, but what about these other verses? Scripture says in other places that God loves the world, right? John 3.16 For Elohim so loved the world that he gave his unique Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but possess everlasting life. See, if God loves the world, surely that means that God loves everyone in the world. 
I mean, yes, God does indeed love the world, but that does not mean that he loves the ones who are actively corrupting and perverting the world, those who thumb their noses at him and wallow in their depravity, or even those who claim to love him but then never act on that love. In his love for the world, he is required in justice to protect the world from those who would corrupt it, from those who would maliciously harm the world and those who are in it. Okay, so how about this one? 2 Peter 3, 9. Hashem is not slow in regard to the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, again, God does wish that all would come to repentance, but he also knows this isn't going to happen. Multitudes of the inhabitants of the earth have and are going to die in their sins, and God's justice requires that he reject them. Read Revelation. Heck, read Exodus or Numbers for that matter. So, how about this one? Acts 10.34 And opening his mouth, Peter said, Truly I see that God shows no partiality. See, no partiality. He loves all the same. He does not choose one over the other. I mean, all anyone has to do is to finish reading the thought by continuing to read the next verse. Acts 10.35 But in every nation, he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Those who fear him and work righteousness are accepted by him. God shows no partiality based on ethnicity, this verse says. He does show partiality based on belief in action. Not that there's no partiality at all in God. Or how about John 15, 9-10? As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Stay in my love. If you guard my commands, you shall stay in my love, even as I have guarded my Father's commands, and stay in his love. The ones who guard God's commands are those who stay in his love, meaning that there are those who do not stay in his love. Or how about Romans 5, 8? But Elohim proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. But who is the us in this verse? Is it every single person? Or is there a specific audience that this passage is directed towards? Now some might say, well, all of these verses that were used to prove that God hates some, they were all Old Testament, and all of the verses of God's love are all New Testament. I mean, God changed at some point from a God who can hate anyone to a God of only love. 1 John 4, 8b says God is love after all. And a God that is defined as love cannot hate, surely. But Malachi 3.6 says, For I am Hashem, I shall not change, and you, O sons of Yaakov, shall not come to an end. Again, Old Testament, it proves nothing. Okay, how about James 1.17? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change nor shadow of turning. Now, one of the issues that we face here when we enter into this conversation is an issue of language. Because in English, in our modern society, love is primarily a feeling. Merriam-Webster defines love in this way. Uh, One, it's a strong affection for another, arising out of kinship or personal ties, such as the maternal love for a child. Two, it's an attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers. Example, after all these years, they are still very much in love. Three, it's affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests. A love for his old schoolmates. It's an assurance of affection. Give her my love. 
a warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion, such as a love of the sea, the object of an attachment, devotion, or admiration. Baseball was his first love. And it could be a beloved person, such as a darling, often used as a term of endearment. There's also the British form of love, used as an informal term of address. Hello, love. Uh, it can mean unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another, such as the fatherly concern of God for mankind, brotherly concern of others, or a person's adoration of God. Or it can be a god, such as Cupid or Eros, or a personification of love. That's how Merriam-Webster defines love. And it uses specifically the fatherly concern of God for humankind as its example. Now, in nearly each of these instances, the word love is accompanied by the idea of affection, a feeling of attachment in some way. But in the Hebrew, there are examples throughout Scripture of each of these definitions being, in fact, accurate definition based on how the word loved is used in the text. So I'm not saying that love is not an idea of affection, because it is. But these definitions, they don't go far enough to get to the depth of the Hebrew understanding of this word. The problem with this understanding of the word love in English is that there is no action connected at all to the word, only emotion. And Hebrew itself is an action-based language, not an emotional one. The Hebrew idea of love is one that is primarily based on choice. One person or one people or group chosen over another. We see Deuteronomy 7 speaks on it this way in verses 7 through 8. It says, Hashem did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more numerous than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because of Hashem loving you, and because of him guarding the oath which he swore to your fathers, Hashem has brought you out with a strong hand and ransomed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Mitzrayim. In this verse, the love of God is directly connected to God's choice of Abraham. And then that choice and that love is demonstrated through the Exodus narrative that we're reading right now. So first comes the choice to choose one over another. Then comes the action that demonstrates that love. Deuteronomy 4.37 says, And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and brought you out of Mitzrayim with his presence and with his great power. In both of these verses from Deuteronomy, we see love connected to both the choice of Israel over all other nations, and the deliverance that God worked on their behalf. So if we return to the idea that God loves everyone, we can easily demonstrate the falsehood of this idea through the plagues of Egypt. Because in Egypt, God chose one group of people over another. He demonstrates his love towards one and his wrath towards the other. So let's once more go through the plagues in order and watch as God chooses to show love to his people over the people of Egypt. And in this, I think we'll see something fascinating in the culmination of this series of plagues. So in the previous weeks, we've looked at how God began his demonstration of creation and his demonstration of justice, beginning small and then working towards the large and the jaw-dropping. In the same way, when plagues begin on Egypt, for the first three plagues, there's no demonstration at all that God is making any kind of distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. 
the first plague, water being turned to blood. This one does in some way reveal that God had seen what had happened to the Hebrew children. It shows that his eyes were on them and that the tragedy that had been perpetrated upon Israel had not gone unnoticed by the God of creation and the God of justice. But it does not reveal a choice on God's behalf to protect the people of Israel from his judgment. They suffer from this plague the same as Egypt does. Any water from the Nile turned to blood. Plague two, the frogs. Israel experienced these just as Egypt did. They were everywhere. They were not protected from this plague. Plague three, the gnats. Again, there's no indication of God extending any kind of protection or special treatment to his people in this plague. It took three plagues for the magicians in Pharaoh's court to admit that these events were indeed being caused by a god and not simply by enemy magicians. God separating out Israel before this, it might have changed the course of everything that occurred later. It's only in Plague 4, the swarms, whether those be swarms of flies or swarms of wild animals. In this plague, just after it is admitted to Pharaoh that there is a God at play with this, God begins to make a distinction, and it's declared before Pharaoh in Exodus 8.22, And in that day I shall separate the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, so that you know that I am Hashem, am in the land of Egypt. Hashem is in the land of Egypt. This was unthinkable to the ancient mind. Gods cannot cross borders. They only had power within their land boundaries. Everybody knows this. So in the mind of Pharaoh, there's no way this could happen. The gods, they simply don't work that way. It's laughable. But then God does work this way. This is not something that's being thrust on Egypt from a hostile exterior force. When God demonstrates that he's protecting his people from these swarms, he is saying, I am here. I am in the land with you. Uh, but in Pharaoh's mind, uh, whatever, it's a fluke, right? He's not actually here in the land. And then in the fifth plague, the death of the cattle. In the fifth plague, it is simply stated once again in Exodus 9, 6-7. And Hashem did this word on the next day, and all the livestock of Mitzrayim died. But the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and see, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let them go. Pharaoh seems to be consoling himself with this idea. Maybe the first time was a fluke. Maybe it was simply coincidence. But now our animals are dead. Go check on the Hebrews. What? What's that? They don't have any dead animals? And so it is an enemy force inside our boundaries. Regardless, in Pharaoh's mind, he was the greatest force in Egypt. Even if there is some sort of god trespassing on his land, there's no way that this god could defeat him. He's Pharaoh. In Plague 6, the boils. Now, in the sixth plague, it is not specifically stated that the Hebrews were not included in the plague. It is implied in one place, though. In Exodus 9.11, it says, And the magicians were unable to stand before Moshe because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians and all the Egyptians. The magicians and the Egyptians. Now, it seems at this point as if God is making a distinction along national lines. But these lines are not the lines of borders, but lines of personal nationality. Not your land or my land, but rather your people, Egypt, and my people, 
Hebrews. It's an ethnic distinction, but much more refined this time. Then in Plague 7, the hail. In this plague, we get for the first time an inkling that this distinction is being extended to the people of Egypt. Because in this plague, a line is drawn, but it's drawn in a peculiar place. The line is drawn in faith. In Exodus 9, 19-21, it says, And now send, bring your livestock to safety and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every beast which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. Those among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Hashem made their servants and livestock flee to the houses. But those who did not set their heart on the word of Hashem left their servants and livestock in the field. For the first time, there is a choice based on faith for the Egyptian to avoid the coming plague. It's stated that if you trust the word of Hashem, bring your stuff inside. Take just one single action and demonstrate that you not trust in the word of Hashem and not in your petty gods. Just a simple step of action and you can save yourself a whole lot of heartache. And then those who trusted among the people of Egypt were for the first time allowed to escape the judgment. But the only real and true escape, however, came to Israel, because we read later in the chapter in Exodus 9.26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So all of Israel escaped the hail. Some in Egypt, who trusted in faith on what God said, were able to save their animals and their people. But they didn't escape the judgment. Now, in Plague 8, the locusts, in this plague, something interesting happens because there's no distinction at all called out in the text. Verse 10 through 14 states specifically that the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt. So there could be, in this verse, a distinction being made between Goshen and Egypt, but then again, perhaps not. So the question is, is Goshen in the land of Egypt in this phrase, or is it something separate? We don't know but I tend towards it being all of the land of Egypt, including Goshen. Why? Well, Goshen was the greenest part of the land of Egypt. It was the most fertile, and it had escaped the plague of hail. If Goshen had not been touched by the locusts, then when Israel left, Egypt would still have some crops left over. All they have to do is simply send people up to Goshen to harvest the crops that Israel had planted. Also, if this plague affected Goshen, it would allow Israel to make the disconnect that was necessary in their own minds from the land of Egypt. It would leave nothing behind that they would seek to stay for, other than the people of Egypt, or the king of Egypt, or the gods and religion of Egypt. That's the only thing left for the people to stay for. And anyone who wished to stay behind for these reasons deserved to participate in the hardship that was yet to come. For this reason, I believe Goshen was indeed included in the Plague of Locusts, that there was no distinction in Plague 8. Plague 9, Darkness. In, in this plague, light was removed from the land, and darkness descended upon the land, and it was a darkness that we read that was tangible. In Exodus 10.23, it said, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, while all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. At the end of the ninth plague and before the beginning of the tenth, we see stated explicitly in this verse that Israel had light, that Egypt did not. Again, it's along national boundaries, it appears to be. 
Now at the end of the ninth plague and before the beginning of the tenth, there is an interlude in the text that composes all ten verses of chapter 11. And this interlude, it's a preparatory warning for Egypt. And in this chapter, there are a large number of distinctions in the text. And it's, it's actually fascinating when you see them all pointed out because that seems to be the focus of chapter 11. In verse 2, Israel is granted favor in the eyes of Egypt, and they're able to plunder Egypt of all their gold and silver without a fight. In verse 3, Israel is given favor in the eyes of the people, and they're held in high honor in Egypt. And the, even the servants of Pharaoh begin to honor Moses rather than honoring Pharaoh. And then later in verse 6, there's a final distinction declared. In the land of Egypt will be a great cry such as there has never been. But in the land of Israel, there will be no sound. Not even the dogs will bark in the land of Israel. The last plague, plague 9, there was no light. But this plague, plague 10, the 10th plague contains an element of sound. Why? What's the reason given for this? So that you know that Hashem makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so proceeds the 10th plague on Egypt, the Passover. This 10th plague on Egypt is something different than all of the plagues that have gone before. As we discussed last week, all of the first nine plagues, they seem to be steeped in the idea of arguments in a trial. But the final plague is the judgment that's declared on Egypt. It's the judgment on the gods of Egypt. It's with this final declaration in the trial of who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And in the tenth plague, a division is created along lines that are not the traditional lines. Now true, the term Israel and Egypt are used, and this has caused many to assume purely national and ethnic lines of division for this tenth plague. But if we pay close attention to the text, this may not be entirely the case. In fact, in a future lesson, I'm going to prove that it's not. But in verse 3 of Exodus 12, Moses is commanded to speak to whom? To the congregation of Israel. The Hebrew word used is not goyim. It's not the word nation. It's a word that goyim itself is a word that is used to describe other nations. But it is a word that can describe Israel as well when it is used to refer to them as a nation. And we'll see this later in Exodus 33, verse 12 through 13, where it says, And Moshe said to Hashem, See, you are saying to me, Bring up this people, but you have not made known to me whom you would send with me. Though you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my eyes. And now please, if I have found favor in your eyes, please show me your way, and let me know, so that I find favor in your eyes, and consider that this nation is your people. And the word in this verse, Exodus 33:13, is goyim. This nation, goyim, is your people. The word used in this passage in Exodus 12, verse 3, is adat. It's a word that's based on a word ad, or a witness. Those who have seen things, those who can tell of the things they have seen, and those whose very lives are a testimony to what has been accomplished. The witnesses to all of the wonders that have gone before. Those who have seen, who have truly seen what has occurred, and have allowed their lives to be transformed because of it. The chapter then continues to offer a description of how to avoid the final plague, and that phrase is just the beginning. Those that are the witnesses or the congregation of Israel are to participate. And the prescription is one that can be entered into by anyone. 
but all who enter into this process cease to be of the nations. Once this is done, all who slay the lamb and put it on their doorposts, they're no longer Egypt. They're Israel. The process of sacrificing the lamb is the revocation of a person's citizenship in Egypt and their inclusion into the assembly and the congregation of Israel, not necessarily the nation of Israel. Now, we're not going to get into the specifics of Passover this week. We will have several weeks to go through that. But we will be in chapter 12 of Exodus for the next two weeks. So, for now, let's continue with this idea of God choosing, separating, creating people wholly devoted to him. So, where is the distinction of separation in this last plague? It's in the blood of the Lamb. From the very beginning of the plagues, we catch a glimpse of a truth that is stated blatantly later in Scripture and that I have already quoted. Romans 5.8 But Elohim proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. In the same way, God demonstrated his love for Israel, that while they were still slaves in Egypt, in shame and undeserving of attention from God, he chose them and redeemed them from their slavery. Not based on anything that they had ever done, not because they were worthy, but because they were chosen. They were loved. And the fact is that God chooses people to be his. But based on what? I'm not sure that that can be quantified. His choice is indiscernible. Perhaps it's as the Jews say, we're born with a good nature and an evil nature, and God chooses based on that nature. I don't believe that to be true. There's not a single place in Scripture that could be used to make that case. Perhaps he chooses based on a nature that chooses life over death. But again, we have no real conclusive evidence that this is the case. His choice is not based on blood or ethnicity, so that we can completely disregard. What we can know is that God does indeed choose among men whom he will call into his service and whom he will enter into covenant with. And we know that this choice is not based upon your nationality. It's not based upon your skin color. It's not based upon what gods you have served in the past. And it's not based upon what sins you have committed in your past or haven't committed. Regardless, how the choice is made is not for us to figure out or to understand. It's for us to simply respond to the choice properly when God extends his hand toward us. In the realm of our relationship with God, that love requires a response in kind. Deuteronomy 10, 12-13 says, And now, Israel, what is Hashem your God asking of you? But to fear Hashem your God to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Hashem your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to guard the commands of Hashem, and his laws, which I am commanding you today for your good. Fear God, walk in his ways, serve him, guard his commands. And these four things that we read in this passage, they all orbit around love. In the realm of human relationships, the fact that God chooses some over others can cause some of us to begin to make choices for ourselves of who is in God's favor and who is not in God's favor. We can go out into the world spewing actual hate rather than what our modern world is calling hate, and we end up making all the wrong choices. We can't define why it is that God chooses some and not others. We can act to call those outside in to experience God's love. Paul speaks on it this way. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 through 
I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with those who whore. And I certainly did not mean with those of this world who whore, or with the greedy of gain, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world completely. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone called a brother, if he is one who whores, or is greedy of gain, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges those who are outside, and put away that wicked one from among you. God calls us to judge. We are to judge. We only get to judge those who are inside the community, those who claim to be believers. We are not to allow wickedness to remain in our midst. But for those who are outside the community, those who are outside of God's covenant, well, they're under God's judgment. That's enough. They don't need our judgment. They need our compassion and our mercy. They need our hand stretched out to them, calling him into his love. And that's something that we can do. We can't choose who God chooses. We are to be his hands and his feet to allow all to hear his words. It's our role to demonstrate the love that he's poured out on us to a world that's under condemnation. It's our role to teach the truth of Passover that is available to all who are facing the plague of death. This is our role, and this is our place, to reveal the truth that there is life, there is acceptance, there is an escape to be found from God's wrath, and that's through the reality of the sacrificial lamb, the one whose blood causes the destroyer to pass over, the lamb that provides the path of life, and the truth that we don't need to seek out this lamb. We know who he is, because the way of life has been revealed. But now it only requires accepting it, taking hold of it, and applying it to our lives. And that, in him, is the path of life. The way that we walk as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.